0: I'm Mindy Abair. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. One pill makes you larger.
2: Pantheon Podcasts presents from Toronto, Canada. Muses with your hosts Shanti and Lynx. The The podcast that celebrates the women of rock and roll. Interviews stories, and fabulous fun. So, grab those backstage passes, and let's get to our show.
0: Today, we had the opportunity to chat with Kathy E. Andalee about her fantastic new book, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop.
3: Kathy is a critically acclaimed journalist and author who has written for Vibe, Vice, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Pitchfork, Playboy, and many other publications. She's also held editorial positions at top hip-hop urban websites such as All Hip Hop and BET.
0: Kathy is an alumna and resident of music business at NYU and has appeared across the media in television, radio, and panels discussing hip-hop and gender. Yeah, we had a blast getting to know Kathy and discussing women's evolution in hip-hop.
3: It's about time someone wrote a book giving these magnificent ladies the credit they deserve, and we know you're going to love it.
0: Both the paperback and audio version is out now, so make sure you pick it up. So before we get into Kathy's amazing interview, uh, we just wanted to thank a few people that are part of our Patreon. Yeah, thank you so much for your support. So we want to thank the next few people because, first of all, we said that we would when we made our Patreon. And secondly, it just, it means so much to us and you deserve some credit. So thank you so much to Abby Sarek. Haley Haley Sorensen. Jennifer Robbins, Kelly Morgan, Mallory Montenegro, Mandy. Yeah, that looks like a tough one. It could be Mandy <laughs> Erlicher? Erlicher? Erlicher?
3: Let's go with Mandy Erlaker. Okay. Tell us, Mandy. Did I get that right? Anywhere in here? Right? Please tell me. (laughs) And
0: Plez Hampton. Thank you, Plez. Yeah. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit of a funny story with Mandy. She is not only a recent patron, but she's a more recent listener to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much, Mandy. Wow. Yeah. So we've been messaging a little bit in Patreon and I said, let us know if there's anything you want to hear if you want us to cover anything and she said well i would love it if you covered candy darling oh well let me tell you she already knows because then she messaged me back and said oh found the episode amazing so we hope you enjoy it and we've had so much fun interacting with all of you and again thank you from the bottom of our hearts if you would like to become a patron and get bonus content head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Yes. Once again, thank you all so much and enjoy our
3: interview with Kathy. Woo.
1: The it is wicked those that don't know how to be pros get evicted a woman could bear you break you take you now it's time to rhyme. can you relate to a sisters open up-
0: we're so here with y'all. Kathy Eanderley we're so excited to chat with you today thank you so much for being on the podcast thanks for having me so we're gonna talk about your amazing amazing book God Save the Queens the essential history of women in hip-hop what a fantastic read
4: Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Like, it's, it's a long time coming for just hip hop in general. So I, you know, I'm glad that I was able to be the one to do it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were really excited to talk about this subject on the podcast as well, because um, we haven't covered that many women in hip hop. And that's something that we've really been wanting to do. So I think this is a great start to that as well.
4: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: You had written in your
4: book that
0: uh, before you wrote about Missy Elliott, you said to your friend, there's just so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's how we feel about speaking with you today. Um, <laughs> the, the book, it really packs a punch. There's so much. And I think we're going to cover a lot of it in our questions. But let's just talk, start talking about uh, Missy. Did you get a chance to check out her new album?
4: I did. I did. It was, um, it was funny because right before the album came out, I had, um, I had an interview where I was, you know, being quoted on something about like what we were going to expect from the album. And, you know, I said, I think I said something along the lines of like, she's probably going to do something to push things forward and and still shock us. And, and, you know, she delivered. I mean, I really feel like what this was, was, you know, checking the temperature of the streets before releasing something else because you know, there was only about like, was it like eight tracks on it or something? Um, so I definitely think that there's going to be something bigger to come from it. I think it was eight. Was it eight or was it four? And now I feel like I'm like, I I should, I should double check that, but it wasn't, it was definitely an EP, you know, but, um, you know, what she brought, you know, to the table from after so many years of, of not releasing any projects. I mean, she definitely delivered, but I'm excited for something longer to come. We want to know a little bit about
3: you before we get into the book. So could you tell us about yourself? Like, where did you grow up? How did your family or community impact your music tastes and passions?
4: Well, I grew up um, in Northern New Jersey. My my family, I kind of divided my time between Patterson, New Jersey and Hawthorne, New Jersey. Um, Hawthorne is kind of the suburb of Patterson. And, um, you know, my mother was a teacher in Patterson. So we had a house in Hawthorne and I went to school in Patterson, you know, even when I was growing up as a little kid before, before school started, uh, I would spend most of my time in Patterson. So you know, I had this interesting duality, you know, of, of, um, of two very, very different communities. Right. Um, my town, you know, Hawthorne, like where my house was, you know, it's the same town that Debbie Harry was from. So I kind of like always carried that pride with me, (laughs) you know? Um, and you know, my mother was like a huge Beatles fan, but also like Joni Mitchell and, and, um, my father, you know, he listened to a lot of rock music. And then when I and started going to school in Patterson. That was where, you know, the hip hop kind of took over. So I had this really interesting kind of combination of all these different genres. And I come from a very musical family. My mother's a pianist. My father plays a guitar. My grandfather played the mandolin. Like I have, there's a lot of music, right? Um, But, and for me, I, I can't say I'm like really talented in the musical <laughs> you know. But I'm Like I can play the piano by ear and I, I took guitar lessons for like five years, but I wouldn't hardly call myself a musician, but just the love of music, you know, has always been a part of me. And, you know, when I got to the age where it was time to like actually choose a career, choosing one in music was like this kind of no brainer. But, you know, as being a woman, in, um, in any industry when you make the decision to enter into the music business specifically you're carrying a whole other kind of energy like trying to figure out like what you're going to exactly do because the music business is so weirdly complicated but then you know being a writer and wanting to find a way to kind of put that all together at a time when you know journalism music journalism specifically was going through this like weird transition it was just it was pretty it was pretty cool but it was also like a scary leap of faith I mean I didn't start writing until maybe five years from working in a in a record store but you know I I've had a lot of like music industry jobs like to before I really decided that writing was going to be the thing but it, it uh you know, I really do believe that my childhood, you know, and the musical background, like really just created this perfect storm of a weird child who would eventually write this book, <laughs> yeah,
3: Shanti and I can really relate to that. We talk a lot about trying to figure out what our place was going to be. We both, I guess probably wanted to be musicians, you know, everyone has that dream, and then it's like, well, that's that's not my place, but we have such a passion for music and writing and everything that, yeah, it was, uh, you know, just finding which path was the right way to go, but making sure that we're still doing something involving our
4: passion for, for music. Yeah, exactly. It's, and when you come down to it, like, I remember I bought this book, right. And it was a book of, every music industry job that you could possibly ever have. And then it like broke down the salaries. Oh my gosh. It was such a, and I, I I don't know where I put that book. And I'm like, I remember just looking, it went to every single possible job. And I was like, I'm going to find a job here. Like I'm going to like dig through this book and everything's going to make sense. And it was really funny because like the salaries went from like 3000 a year to like 300,000 or something. And like, it was just so, it was, like, full of just these broad strokes of, like, let's just make a really vague book for people who may want to be part of music. Like, so when you got into, like, the like the sales side, they started with, like, cashier at record store making $8.50 an hour. But then the last one is the vice president of sales and merch. You know what I mean? And it was, like, one of those things where it, like, went, like, step by step. And I remember looking through that book and being, like, oh, man, I'm screwed. well it's interesting
0: that that was even a part of your consciousness in the first place like whoever wrote it or how you got it is pretty fascinating because being from where i'm from in a small town in northern ontario it was very much like so what are you going to choose a nurse or a teacher and we had Mm -hmm. a a career cruising website that did have kinds of salaries but it didn't really offer too much and besides um lawyer doctor, nurse, this. So I knew what those salaries were. But apart from that, um, it sounds like something like that maybe would have been helpful. Sometimes you see television shows with skin wars
4: and it's body painting and you're like, wow, I didn't even know that was an option. Right. Yeah. And I think the thing is, though, you know, I I had the same kind of um, upbringing, you know, um, my mom was a teacher professor and like I. I was actually going to go to law school. Like I, I was a paralegal. I studied for my LSATs. I was good to go. I was like, all right, I'm Because the thing is, you know, growing up in like the strict Italian home, it was one of those things where, yeah, like pick your profession from like a very short list. Right. And I always kind of, I I always worked. I had this, like, I had like a double life, right? Like I would always work. um, I worked at my uncle's law office, but then like, at night, I would go and work at the record store. Like, in summers, like, I would work, like, 9 to 5 at my uncle's office. And then from 5.30 to 9.30, I'd work at the record store. Like, it was always like that. And I and I had – I started working at 14. So after school, let's say, I would work – I would get on the, um, the bus to take me home, and I would work 3 to 5 at my uncle's. And then I would go from 5.30 to 9.30 at the record store. Like, I always was, like – it was always, like, having this backup plan, right? Like, just in case, like – you know, I, I want this to work out too, but you know, like it, it was, it was weird. Um, and I remember, I remember it was like, Hmm, I want to say maybe about 10, 15 years ago that I was like, wow, there's no backup now. Like, this is it. Like I'm in it. <laughs> like there was no like part-time office job. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't, that wasn't a thing anymore. And, and, um, And, you know, being able to kind of fall headfirst into my career was was pretty cool. But, you know, it can also be very scary. But um, I, too, was like part of that whole, like, pick from the short list of careers and just kind of rock with it. But, um, you know, I don't even think, especially in this industry, especially now, that you could even sit there and say to someone, here, here's a book of music industry jobs, and this is what they pay, and this is what you need to do. It's really like, okay, so either you invent something really, really cool, you become a personality or, you know, someone and your salary can be from free to millions of dollars. So good luck.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And I think, too, it's uh, with having the option of doing things online you can choose what you want to do and you can charge what you want to charge and just Mm -hmm. once you say i accept or i don't accept this kind of payment and i know what my self-worth is then you can kind of make that up for yourself there is this funny scene in the show love i don't know if you saw it but they're working at a Radio station, and then they run mm-hmm. into this girl who has a podcast, and the older guy is like, "Oh, where did you go to school?" And she was like, "YouTube mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> Podcast University." Ever heard of it? <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, and that's true. I mean, there is no, there is no curriculum for this. I mean, and you know, I'm a professor in residence at NYU, and like, you know, um, we have this course that's called Village Records, where I go in and. Um, consult with the students who are forming this record label. And I'm like, man, I mean, I went to grad school for music business and I remember just like, and I was already a journalist. I had already been in the industry, so to speak. And I remember sitting in these classes and I'm just like, wow, my, my student loan debt is going to be so intense for a curriculum that like, I'm just a little like suspicious of, (laughs) but you know, it did help me. It did give me a sense of structure and understanding this industry a little bit better. But I think especially nowadays, there's really no rule book, you know, it's really just kind of like trial and error and figuring it out. Cause everything changes like every year, you know, things that were hot last year or the hot new career or the hot new website, any of that stuff, like it's gone the next year, or it's like so woven into the fabric of the industry that it's just like, it's no longer like the cool thing, but there's still a way to like sustain, um, an in income or things like that. But like, I remember when I started, I started where web was looked down upon, you know, mm-hmm. if you are not a print journalist, like what, what is it? You write for a website. What do you have? Like an angel fire page. Like it was like, you <laughs> know, like geo Like it was like one of those things where, you know, digital was not the move. Like it was like print is God and everything else is like the corny free thing that you have on your pewter. you know yeah
3: it is interesting journalism and the music business seem to be two professions that are constantly changing and that's super exciting but also super scary it's not like when you you're talking like a nurse a doctor a lawyer those kind of jobs there is sort of like a straight path that you can take like you know the the steps to take but with you know, things like music and everything. Yeah, you kind of have to carve out your own and each person that you you got to do your own thing. You got to make it happen your own way. You can't kind of be like, okay, well, this person did this, this and this. So I'm just going to do
4: that. And I'll end up there as well. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like you can't. But I think like, I think that the other difference is that the music industry is attached to quote unquote fun, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is a fun thing. Journalism too. And unless you're like some sort of political reporter, um, especially now in the United States, I don't think that's a fun job at all. But, but there's an, there's an air of like, it's like, you know, this like whole Peter Pan thing, right? Where it's like, you're, you're part of this very youthful, fun industry, right? And being able to, constantly live in a space where it's choose your adventure. Mm. I think that also makes it very different from any sort of like structured careers outside of like working in a circus maybe. But yeah, I mean, like I still have, I have people nowadays, like, I mean, I work from home, you know, I've been self-employed for over a decade and there's still some people who just like don't understand that. Like when I'm like, Oh, I have to work today. It's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Cool. You know, like, understanding that having to go and interview an artist is still work. It's still me, you know, commuting to a place to sit in front of someone and talk to them for an hour and be interesting, (laughs) like, you know, and and, and get something out of it to be able to then go home and create something else out of it. Like there's, you know, people just, people see, especially since we're in such a celebrity obsessed, uh, you know, in just like a world yeah. <laughs> forget like you know so those kinds of things like because of that obsession they see people who are there that are paid to be there as just you know oh yeah but you're having fun like I would kill for that job I'm like really you want it
0: yeah 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 that's really interesting and we talked um we were talking a little bit about your career in journalism you wrote for so many magazines like Vice and Rolling Stone and cosmopolitan i see that brian hyatt follows
4: you on twitter um what was your <laughs> <laughs> brian hyatt follows me on twitter on my resume there it is <laughs> i just keep you what's up brian
0: <laughs> i really like his uh, rolling stone music now podcast actually it's, it's awesome it's the only uh modern music podcast that i listen to everything else is super kind of old school rock and roll mm-hmm Um, What was your experience like writing for all of those magazines and being that journalist that people can kind of somewhat understand? Like, oh, yeah, journalism. But how did you feel about it?
4: It's cool. I mean, the thing that I think is the coolest part is like when you're freelance, you can take on any story that you want. Right. When you're working on a staff, you're like a part of a bunch of people who are all kind of vying for the same things. Right. So if I want to interview Beyonce and I work at a website or a magazine, I mean, it's not going to happen, but you're part of like this like long list of people who want in on it as a freelancer. If one magazine doesn't want it, another one might, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's always been kind of the move for me is being able to take on stories that I can go anywhere and write them, essentially, that that's been the most rewarding part for me, I would say.
3: Yeah, you get to choose pieces that you know, you're passionate about and want to write about. So that's amazing. And um, you actually co authored the book commissary kitchen
4: with, um, with prodigy. Can yes. You t- tell us about that. Well, prodigy, you know, rest in peace, you know, he's a good friend of mine. And when he got out of prison, That's when I really, really met him and we kind of forged a friendship and he wanted to write this book about just what, how the prison system is organized and what it does on an, even on a nutritional level, because he, you know, he suffered from sickle cell anemia and the worst kind, the SS type. So he, he wanted to just bring awareness to the prison system and, and how inmates are kind of treated and the way the the food system works in there and all of these things. And it was a really, really rewarding project because I was doing something where I was bringing this understanding um, to, you know, the the greater public of, of what goes on in prisons, but also, you know, humanizing just the lives that are in there and how you know, their health can matter too. You know, you're, the other thing that people don't understand is that when people leave a prison system and they're full of disease because of the food that was in there, they're now coming out and, you know, going to emergency rooms in different hospitals and trying to get treatment for things that like happened while they were in there. And it, it becomes a, a nationwide issue. You know what I mean? And, you know, P really wanted to just bring that awareness. And I was glad we were able to do that before he passed away.
0: That's so fascinating, something that I certainly would never have considered. I mean, I'm obsessed with talking about, uh, you know, being a millennial on a budget and how can we eat well and how can we stay healthy? But then you don't even extend that to too far out of your own neighborhood, let alone the prison system. So that's really fantastic. And um, that's that's really interesting.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because you don't realize. So like, this was something that I thought was like... Yeah, this is what I thought was like really like gave me like I was like what? So, in prison, if you want water, they would give you an empty jug and you would have to like climb like all these stairs to get this to this hose or something, right? To fill up a jug of water and then bring it down to your room or whatever, right? Your cell. Wow. Wow. But sweet orange drinks and sweet tea are brought to you. What? So, yeah. So if you want actual fresh water, you have to like work for it, but <laughs> they're more than willing to hand you a sugary drink. Wow. So, yeah, so, you know, and I mean if you're you're already in prison, like, you know, you're already just like completely maybe feeling defeated, you may not be walking for that water. So you're just going to be drinking orange drink all day. And like, you know, and then they wonder why people come out with diabetes, you know, or, um, another thing is, uh, with ramen noodles, like there's like a, that little packet of a seasoning Mm -hmm. that you can get. There's a thing called prison tea and people drink, like they mix it with hot water and just drink the sodium packets. It's got like something like, 3000 milligrams of sodium or something. And if you're drinking that three times a day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if that's
0: just the United States or if it's pretty much the same in Canada as well and places in Europe. Yeah.
4: That was yeah really well, when I was researching that stuff, I like looked it up and, you know, depending on where you are, it can be like very different or very similar. The one thing that I thought was like really interesting was like in the sixties, the menu in like prisons in the UK. Oh my gosh. It was like a five-star hotel. (laughs) Like Uh it's like they were having like roast and like Yorkshire pudding. I don't know. I was like, this is prison. Oh, (laughs) wow. A lot has changed. Mm -hmm. I'll say.
0: All right. We talked, you mentioned a little bit about, um, being at NYU. Yeah. Working as a professor of music business. What part about, I mean, you wear so many hats, but what part of that, um, of your job like really shines and what do you love about that?
4: Well, you know, I should say it's, it's an in-residence, you know, position. It's not like I show up every day and and teach a class. It's more like kind of like getting to go in a few times a semester and do a pageant wave. No, I'm kidding. But it's like, like, it's, it's, um, it's cool. It's, it's very, it's rewarding because it keeps me up to date on what's going on in, in that part of the industry and like what the younger like, generation is learning about and like what they're preparing themselves for. But I think like the part that was like really interesting um, for me is seeing how many people go into these programs with the intent to invent something afterwards instead. Like mm-hmm. I left that program thinking that we were supposed to be getting desk jobs. They leave the program thinking, okay, so what company am I going to start? And that's been, you know, that's like a really big difference.
3: Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, different uh, different way of thinking about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Absolutely. Well, before we get into talking about your book, God Save the Queens, we're going to take a little break, and we will be right back with Kathy. Hey, Lynx, I've never seen anyone rock cat eye makeup quite like you before, or that red lipstick that you do. Why, thank you. I consider it my signature look. When it comes to beauty products, we have so many choices, so why not ask for more from your favorite brands? I'm motivated now more than ever to stick to high-quality, amazing products that are both vegan and cruelty-free. That's why I'm so glad that we discovered Thrive Cosmetics. Thrive Cosmetics products provide amazing coverage, highlight your
3: best features, and are created for long-lasting wear. All of Thrive Cosmetics clinically proven ingredients are free of parabens and sulfates.
0: Good! Because I don't know exactly what they are, but I know that they are bad. Yes. I mostly use mascara, and theirs give my eyelashes such awesome length that people compliment me all the time, and sometimes they even ask me if they're real.
3: Yeah, you do have really amazing eyelashes. But wait, it gets even better. Thrive Cosmetics gives back, too. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women who are in need. These causes include women emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, and fighting cancer. Wow. Yeah.
0: Now that I am a mature and mindful woman, I'm really looking at the ingredients before buying and making sure that no animals were harmed in the creation of my beauty product. This was the first thing that we looked at with Thrive to make sure that they align with our values, and they do. Leaping Bunny and PETA, the leading authorities on cruelty-free cosmetics, have certified Thrive Cosmetics as completely vegan and cruelty-free. This is so amazing.
3: You can auto-replenish your products so you never run out of your favorite Thrive Cosmetics essentials like their Liquid Lash Extension Mascara or Buildable Blur CC Cream.
0: Start thriving and help women in need today by going to thrivecosmetics.com slash muses and enter code muses for 15% off your first purchase. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S
3: dot com slash muses enter code
0: M-U-S-E-S for 15% off. One more time. That's com slash muses. So, Kathy, this
3: book, God Save the Queens, has certainly been a long time coming. It is not easy to go back and track over 45 years and correct what the history books got wrong, but you did it. Tell us about the writing process.
4: Well... You know, I thought about this book about 10 years ago, and I was right before Nicki Minaj kind of blew up. So the timing wasn't exactly right. I had been thinking about this book for a very, very long time. And, you know, I think I I really came to the conclusion that the time was now um, probably about um, a year and a half ago. And just watching, um, you know, Nicki, being Nikki and and doing her thing and then Cardi B and, you know, hearing about this whole like Missy Elliott return and and just seeing that we're like in a space where there's a lot more women than there have been in recent years. And I am just like, you know, there's got to come a point in time where we're compiling this historically. You go into like hip hop books and like women get like a page or a chapter. And it's usually like some sort of like cheeky, like, And now it's time for the ladies, like, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, so I really felt it was important to, in order to look forward, to kind of look backwards first and and just go back on these like four decades and just, you know, really review all of these things that have happened and, and highlight, you know, the ups and downs and the wins and the losses and things that women had to do just to have a seat at the table. I mean, there's, there's a lot and, you know, it speaks to the nature of the music industry, but most specifically hip hop and just how, how hard it was to get ahead. And the fact that we're in this place right now where there's so many women that are winning, I think it, it made it the perfect time to even just create this book that, that can celebrate that and celebrate this and you know just see how far we've come.
0: It really was awesome. And this is coming from somebody, you know, I really had no idea what that evolution looked like. And there was so much to absorb, but you also did it in a way that I really understood it. So it was not like an easy read, but you made it really clear. And uh, I really got to understand how the industry has evolved so rapidly. So like from fires to Instagram and women having to fight to be visible. Um,
4: yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Baby D <laughs> had said, sometimes I have to sit down and question myself if we were really there.
4: Yeah. You quoted
0: her as, as saying that. And, you know, there's been that rampant misogyny and sexism in the music industry, men feeling intimidated, getting outbattled, unplugging cords, not hopping fences, not, paying the women to participate in the films, women not getting paid to perform. Like, what was it about women in hip-hop that had the men so intimidated?
4: Well, it was a couple of things. And I think, like, shout-out to Baby D and the Mercedes ladies, because, you know, they are one group that I feel never got the recognition that they deserved, especially for what they did for hip-hop at that time. Um, But, you know, you're talking about a, a very, very young scene at the time, you know, when you're, when you're speaking specifically about the pioneers, which, you know, um, begin in the early seventies into like the late seventies, early eighties, um, you're talking about kids like 13 years old, you know, 14, and they're all just kind of hanging out and, and figuring this thing out. And, you know, um, on the flyers, the cool part was, you know, shout out to Debbie D who, um, you who know, sat me down and like opened this book of flyers. And it was just like fascinating because the names, first of all, there were like 30 names on the flyer, right? All different artists. And then what they did, they'd list the high schools that they would be at, like the high schools that were invited. So that just goes to show you just how young everyone was, right? Um, these are the high schools that are going to be showing up to this party where so-and-so's performing or these jams, they were, they were jams back then. But the reason why I think women became a threat was when they started to see that the scene was getting bigger and bigger means more exposure and more exposure means more money or money just in general, right? When you get to that point, then the presence of women, they become more of a liability than an asset because now there's only so much money to go around at that point in time. So, to fathom a woman taking from that pot Mm. suddenly just became this huge threat, right? So, and I think Roxanne Chante is definitely someone who had to really endure that as well because, you know, she, when she hit radio and it opened an entirely different, you know, door for people in hip hop because, you know, you're you're talking about like like records were being cut, sure, but the whole radio element, once radio happened, you know, it was it was different, right? Like when the Roxanne wars came and, and it just it added a different energy. And I think men felt threatened and it doesn't matter the age, you know, from fourteen to fifty, whatever, you know the idea that there was a woman who may be making the money that they thought they should be making or getting the exposure that they thought they should be getting. That's when, you know, I think things started to change, but it's interesting because, you know, women were like that, like secret weapon. Right. When, when, uh, Mr. Magic and fly tying them, um, were upset that, um, the party didn't get the, the, the concert didn't happen with UTFO. You know who do they send in they send in shantae when you know audio two was mad about Herbie, Love lovebug taking their beat who did they send in they sent in mc light you know um i think there's just there was a power behind women but there was also this like threat and it persisted it constantly did i mean that's why there's like the idea of only one because what happens if two three four and five are taking from this pot that maybe men thought that they should, they thought they should have, you know? Um, and it's still around, you know, this isn't something that has completely changed. right? Right. But it is something that because of the growth, I think we are experiencing like kind of this shift and, and seeing, you know, understanding rather that, um, that there's like, there's there's value there's like you know there's talent there's just it's i think it, it was just the thing that was like really just fascinating to me was just just seeing how all of that changed but even as like more money came it was like well you know just men still wanting the greater whole you know what i mean like and that was a thing that's like whether it was like 1 or a million dollars it's like well you know there wasn't a point in time where they're like okay let's have a bunch of you know, there's enough to go around. It was never enough. You know what I mean? And I think like, that's, that's where nowadays, I think it's everything. It's really special because we did have a, a time period where there were a lot of women on the scene, you know, throughout different uh, points in time. But if you notice when the whole idea of one really started happening, when hip hop started making money, money, Yeah. You, you know? Um, and yeah, it was, I don't know. I, I learned so much writing this book and I didn't, you know, I, I really thought that I was someone who knew everything. I thought I could write it without having to even research it, you know, or, or talk to anyone. Like I, I really, I really thought, I, you know, I, I could, I could do this with my eyes closed, but my eyes were opened, like super same, same here. wide. And
0: just as you learned so much writing it, we learned so much reading it. And if people who are listening and they're unfamiliar with these names like Roxanne Chante really do go and read the book because, you know, having a conversation about it is one thing and then actually immersing yourself in these people's lives and their stories and just learning about Roxanne Chante and all of those um, battles was so... Interesting. So I just really want to encourage, again, people to go and read the book for that reason, because your research was very evident as well. And going and speaking to so many people and seeing those scrapbooks and having those conversations was really worth it.
4: Thanks. Yeah, I didn't want to make it an encyclopedia. You know, I thought after all this time, like making some sort of a textbook, I don't think people would have would like latch onto it. I'm glad you I'm glad you both enjoy it. Like I really am, because you know, I, I didn't want to create something that would be just this like boring textbook. I mean, you know, because there was a lot of information to pack. There were so many people I wanted to include in this book that I couldn't, and there were so many stories I wanted to tell, but in the interest of space and real estate in a book, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and just the idea of we're in such a microwavable society, I would love to have made this it's like a 700-page book, but I couldn't, you know. Um, well, maybe a part I, two in the future. You know,
3: maybe, maybe. So you talked a little bit about how these women were so young and people from, you know, high schools were getting in these competitions in the early days and seeing other young women doing this led to more women joining in. One thing we were surprised to learn about was the back-and-forth dis tracks and how Mm -hmm. everyone loved them somehow it seems harmful like the beefs the slapback women out to put each other down it comes off as an essential part of the women finding their voices and being heard in hip-hop but ultimately did it do harm was it their best defense to
4: unify or was that even a choice then well I think that men like to fetishize um, women fighting yeah I I think in any in any arena, right. That's why there's things like oil wrestling, right. Like, like, I think they, I think there's like this idea of just like loving a fight, right. Like witnessing that in any way, whether it's an argument or whether it's, you know, a cat fight or a pillow fight, a pillow fight. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that idea is just something that like men really love. And I think allowing for this, like, I think like, the way that Roxanne Chantay and Sparky D did it, I think was like very unique and, you know, them touring and fighting each other on stage, you know, like, well, like dissing each other, like, you know, battling with the mics, like not necessarily boxing, even though they got like, I think like their gloves are touching on this, uh, on the single for, um, uh, you know, their, the their battle track, but yeah, like having people watch that in real time was something that was like really cool, but it also allowed everyone to know that like, look guys, this is not real. I mean, that's that's different from what happened between let's say Kim and Foxy, you know, or even like later on between, you know, Nikki and Kim or Nikki and Cardi or, you know, Remy and Nikki, like whomever, <laughs> right? When having like women just, being against each other, it, it just, they loved it. But I think also it, it allowed for this weird, like kind of Hunger Games type of uh, battle, like where like you still, there's still like a victor or Game of Thrones. I've never seen a Hunger Games film or a Game of Thrones like episode, So I'm really just, you know, for all I know these things are about like something completely different, but I, I feel like there's always just like this competition of who's the last one standing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so pardon those references because I watch really horrible TV. So, but, um, yeah, like that idea of like, just like the, the battle, right. For the, for the last one. And I think that's really what it came down to like, while people love to see a good fight, it was also just, um, just reiterating the idea that there still could only be one left, you know, somebody had to get taken down, you know, because, any other way, you know, would, would create too many women in the space and that might be a problem. So, yeah, just I think that's it was a combination of those factors of like the willingness to to watch the fight and then the understanding of what the outcome would really reveal.
1: Excuse me, but who would you be? Yeah, that's right. I'm fucking. So listen, to my girl, what you have to say? Get it right, baby, Roxanne. Show Hi, Roxanne. And how do you do? To me Let me tell you something, girl, that you should know. I'm sparky, T and I'm running this show. You got places in your mouth. You're full of disgust. Don't bother drink water because your mouth won't rust. You went to the doctor, and what did you hear? The doctor said, Rashad got gone for your back said,
0: Help me. At you said, you so, with the women kind of battling each other, that was one thing. But then, what about? Um, men bashing women in songs, so like for example Ice Cube kind of fueled with his anger towards the system, the police and also um, to women do you think that was a com- like a completely different thing? Like it was way more harmful than women battling each other? Um, like So why was an artist like Ice Cube so angry towards women and then what did that send to other people when they listened to his music?
4: Well you know, I think Ice Cube is also one of the reasons why we have Yo-Yo, right? And Ice Cube really gave Yo-Yo the space to challenge him back on a lot of the stuff he said, right? So I wouldn't I wouldn't put the burden of all of that on somebody like Cube because I think like that was the general disposition of men at the time and, you know, even nowadays. What I what I do think is West Coast hip hop, particularly like gangster rap, really upped the the idea of like referring to women as hoes or like, you know, bitches and like mm-hmm. things like that. And I think, you know, where we came to this strange crossroads is when women are dancing in the club to so that, you know, we're looked at as like, as accepting of the behavior. Like that's, that's the seal. Like that's the, that's the decision that we make.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: like that. You know, as soon as, as soon as you nod your head to, to an NWA song, you've all, now you've, now you've done it. Like that's like, you've, you've created that line. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of um there's a lot of gray area to that, but I think that during that time period when it became more acceptable to dismiss women and, um, you know, in the interest of just getting their body counts up and doing things like that, like in the interest of like treating them as objects, that's where you found some of your most brilliant music from women in hip hop, because they were just speaking out against that and like retaliating and, and, and fighting that overall opinion and like, I love like that, like that was like, you know, we're like inching into the golden era of hip hop. And, and, um you know, you, during that time period, you had like Queen Latifah and Moni Love, like MC light. Like those were the artists that were like fighting back from that, like overall just regard for women and just being like, no, no, uh-uh. And I think like it, it, it came back again. You know in the 90s around 96 because when you're talking about hip-hop entering kind of a different kind of a gangster rap uh phase you know instead of like like the west coast um gangster rap you're talking about now like artists adopting like the mafia-esque gangster right so it's a different kind of gangster rap right mm-hmm. but then the same thing was happening the only difference was where um gangster rap in the west coast was like more geared towards just kind of dismissing women the gangster the mafia gangster rap of the 90s was like okay are you the ride or die are you going to hold this gun for me are you going to move this weight for me are you going to be the one counting the money while i'm out in the streets like it was a different mentality but it was equally dismissive like it was still like kind of this like their women were still kind of like this pawn right Mm -hmm. but it was during that time period where You had like Kim and Foxy who came out and started just talking about, um, the inconsistencies of men, especially in the bedroom, you know, like there is, so there was always kind of this talk back and fighting against, you know, or, or like, especially on hardcore when like little Kim has, uh, there's like this, uh, skit where she's, you know, she's behind bars and her man is visiting her. And she's like, uh, you didn't try You didn't come visit me for like Mm -hmm. years you know? And, um, she, like, she opens her song, like, um, you know, hasta la vista, like, you know, bye-bye. Like, and she's like about to like shoot him, Like, it's just like those kinds of things. Like it was, it was different. It different, but still the same, like still the same kind of, uh, uh-uh, hold on, hold on, you know? And I just, I love like all of the women in this book, their music, everything, just what they did and what they contributed, man, such badasses. So cool. Like, I was just, I I, re- I'm, I read this book as a fan of, of women. Like I've read my own book a couple of times because I just love the women that are in it. It's got nothing really to do with my pen. It's just like being like remembering <laughs> just this time period.
0: Exactly. And I really like how you didn't often say she was the first, this was the first, Um, for certain things, yes, but you refer to a lot of these women as pioneers. You know, there's so much feminism in hip hop and there was so, so much um, evolving and it was all because, you know, they were building upon one another.
4: Yeah, and the subject of first is really, really arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Like you can't, that something could have been going on across the country that we didn't know about, right? It's a lot easier now to claim first in a world where everyone lives on social media, right? And things can become popularized and and you can have some like little receipt of when that first started, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can, you know, you can find some sort of proof on what what was first or who was first and, and all that stuff back then there was just a lot happening and people didn't have computers, you know, they had telephones and they weren't able to figure out like when I was trying to figure out like who would be regarded as the first female MC soloist, that was really hard. You know, um, it's something that I don't think I can, I can still, I could still answer, but you know, Debbie D had, had really by, by her criteria, she really, you know, made the case for, who was on a flyer first, right? Mm -hmm. The first name to appear on a flyer. And that's the other thing. Like, it's like the tree falling in the forest, um, theory, right? If you're in your bedroom rapping, how do we know you were first? Yeah. Like, and what does that even mean? Like when you're repeating a, um, a hip hop song or you wrote something in your bedroom, like that makes you the first, but I think it's no, I think it, I think it does have to do with the first one to come out on the scene and record music or perform that music anything like that you know the per, the first to perform a jam yeah there are a lot of those um women and they might have all come out on the same day I don't even know and, but you know I wanted to make sure that they were all recognized and represented which I think is the most important and I think it's more important than placing them in chronological order Mm -hmm. because i don't i don't i think it's hard it's really hard to answer that it's hard to um or solve that mystery um we never really think about like who was the first man to um, to rap no right i mean we have our godfathers of hip-hop and and things like that i mean you know herc was the first to throw this jam i mean but really it was his sister's party like you know (laughs) so it's there's there's just a lot and it was it's a lot of undocumented history Mm -hmm. and that was the hardest part for me, because if like if you're talking about a chunk of time that was hard enough to document historically, right? Yeah, then breaking it down even further to the women, it's like,, whew. I mean, you know, you can't open a book and get these answers. So you're talking to a lot of people. There's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of contributing factors, like historical events, you know, that contributed to to all of this. and Yeah. I, I remember when I was like first trying to figure this out because initially I was, um, my publisher wanted me to start with Roxanne Chante 1984. And I'm like, if you think I'm going to skip 10 whole years, (laughs) you know, I'll do the work. I just have to figure this out. Like I have to figure out how to do this, you know? So then it's getting in touch with the pioneers, you know, and, and and speaking to them and being like, so like, what is this, what is that? And I feel like those 10 years in the book, are some of the most rewarding to have written, but then also to be able to read, because these are things that like not too many people, if they hadn't been there, learned about by reading this book. Like this is, it's like the first time a lot of us are, are hearing about these things. And it's also a testament to just how long hip hop has been a part of um, our existence. Absolutely. I mean, this was this was an art form. Yeah. yeah. They were writing this off as disco. Uh. Wow. You know? Yeah. They thought it was going to be gone. So why even honor it if it's going to be gone anyway? And that's really what happened for that chunk of time. It was the idea of like, uh, I mean, this is just some cute thing happening in the South Bronx, so we'll just kind of ignore it for a bit until they realize, oh, we better get on board.
3: Yeah. We also learned so much about history outside of hip-hop from your book. Uh, For example, 1992 can be considered... Uh, the Year of the Woman, since there was so much more representation of women in the Senate, uh, the social climate was changing, women were bringing forward sexual assault allegations toward the Supreme Court, and a report called Rape in America revealed the truth about dramatic sex crimes in America. How did all of that inspire the movement further? How did this timing coincide with women in hip hop breaking away from the boys club with their voices being truly heard
4: well you know when i was putting this particular um chapter together it was inspired by um a piece i had written where i compared um tlc to public enemy right um and and the potential that tlc had to become public enemy at the time and it was because of this one song on Ooh on the tlc tip it's called his story and it's about the tawana brawley rape trial That really was like the inspiration behind the whole entire chapter. Um, because I, I wrote this piece because I was comparing Left Eye to a combination of Chuck D and Flavor Flav in her ability to speak on certain things and but also like kind of keep it animated and fun. And um, 1992, you know, was um, really a pivotal year for hip hop, women in hip hop, but also in punk because, you know, It was like the heart of the riot girl movement too. So there was a lot happening just across the board. And when it came to really fighting against the powers that be and how they were handling all of this, because, you know, there's, there's this weird thing that happens in, um, in society when, how should I put it? When, when a population of people that are um, at a disadvantage are pushed to the forefront, And the majority tends to fight back, you know, um, it's the reason why while Obama was in office, we saw so many race crimes, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
4: Because when the majority is not used to making space for other people and, and other communities and populations of people, the reaction is then to just start fighting and, you know, and become destructive. And because it was designated the year of the woman in 92 and we're seeing so many women moving up, the natural response by the majority being men, being white men, right, was to hurt women. Mm-hmm. And that's why you saw the spike in sexual assault and um, you know other sex crimes and, and rapes. Like That's why that, that, that shift happens, because when... When people, uh, when, when the majority is starting to see society changing, they're losing their comfort, right? They're losing their privilege. So that's how they respond, you know. And that was essentially what was happening. You can look at any piece of history where something where there's a um, a change, and that's usually the unfortunate symptom, you know, um, of that. So that's why 1992 is is seen as such a strong year for women politically, but it's also why so many men were doing what they were doing. And and musically, that was just a really important time for women to start creating music that, um, that fought that right. And, and spoke out against it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was one of those things where, you know, when, when you look at the statistics, you're like, Oh my gosh, like, you want to, you want to be wrong, right? (laughs) You want, you want that to be like something like, oh, well, you know, this is just by chance, but no, I mean, this is, this is what happens when people of privilege, um, are, are, feel like their, their privilege is being threatened. And, um, I just think it's really cool that, you know, the music reflected that. And then like, just like the whole added layer where it's like, you look at like what TLC was doing at that time and and Latifah and like just the music they were making. Right. Like, and then riot girl, you know, bikini kill. Like, I mean, um, just being able to hear the songs of rebellion, like, Oh, like, I don't know. No, you're I, I, exactly. I, I, fan, I fan, fan girl out, um, uh, for a lot of these artists when I think about stuff like that, because it's just like the strength and the determination to create that stuff and, and, and speak out in a way that like no one was ready for, exactly. you know, and yeah. that's
0: the thing. And I'm thinking about when Left Eye was singing about abortion and how bald eagles are treated better than the lives of black people. I was mm-hmm. like maybe six years old and she's spreading the message, you know, that black lives matter before it was called that. Salt and pepper were tackling police brutality, sex work, HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm.
4: All of the above. It's and powerful it was stuff. Really so powerful. So powerful. Like but, you know, that's, that's the thing about women in hip hop, you know, when, when you truly have nothing to lose, you gain everything by being able to speak up. because that's, you know, and there, there was no threat to the money, to the, like, there's no threat to, to speaking. And I think even if there was a threat, they would have still been doing their thing. You know, there was a, it was a very big time for hip hop because there, there was like this evolutionary upswing, like like hip hop was on its way up, you know, like it was, and still is, it's like constantly growing. But in spite of all that, you know, a lot of women took a leap of faith and just were like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to speak on this. And I mean, that's just a testament to the power of black women in particular, too, and their ability to just move forward and and point things out and say things that other people don't say. And, you know, that's why a book like this needed to happen to honor those voices.
3: Yeah. Let's talk about reclaiming certain words. A few years ago, Slut was reclaimed by the Guys We Fucked podcast. We try to celebrate the term groupie as part of rock and roll history. And then we have the term bitch. Little Kim owned it by calling herself queen bitch, supreme bitch. It's all back to being embraced. And Lizzo now, uh, she, she sings, turns out I'm 100% that bitch, you know, in her song mm-hmm. Truth Hurts. What do you think
4: of this? I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I would also give Amber Rose credit for the slut walk. Yes. Um, uh, with oh, regards yeah. to, Absolutely. you know, um, Absolutely. because I think, you know, the, the word slut, right? Like I remember, remember that like time period where the, the phrase slut wave that, that was like, you know, and I, that, but, um, it was like, slut wave was like used to describe like women, like pop singers who like about sex. And I mean, this was only like, like now I think it was, I think slut wave was like in 2008 to yep. something like that, like 10 years ago. We right? should have used perhaps the, the word, word pioneer
0: for, you know, they were one of the pioneers reclaiming uh, this word because
4: yeah, you're right. There were, there were many other people before too. Well, but I think it, I think it was one of those things where, you know, the word subjective in the way of, of the power, you know, I think. I think the the greatest thing a woman can do when we're attacked in some way using rhetoric is to respond. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, when that, when that happens, you know, that's, that's where magic happens. Right. So I would say that like, there was a combination of different, um, different women who just turned around, like, and you know, the word was like, Oh, well, you're a slut. Yeah. And <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden the power is taken out of, the word, right? Exactly. Like there there it is, you know. Um bitch I think is a little different. I think like that that's a word that goes in so many different directions and which is why I uh I made my little interlude about that um in the book because there's there's a lot of just like there's a, words used to describe women in various capacities often go through this like roller coaster ride. I mean like you know even like the word female sometimes when um men use the word female it's it's not complimentary right yeah especially like you know some females do this it's like well okay or did you want to say like bitch instead like and that was like your cover up word like you know what i mean but you know there's there's so many and um i think reclaiming them i, don't, I mean i don't know like have we have we really has bitch like after, after like little Kim kind of, you know, called it, I think there's always like, there's been just this kind of, it's been the, the word bitch has just kind of been existing in uh, our periphery. But um, I think about like the word diva, right? Mm. Like where for a large time period, like, you know, diva was like, um, kind of a compliment. I mean, the H one divas live, you know, all that stuff. But it's also the same word that's used to describe, a woman who just like simply wants something, um, or has a requirement when it comes to her career. It's like, Oh, look at her being a diva, you know? And yeah. it's like every, any word used to describe a woman is sometimes like either celebratory or it's like condescending. Like, it's like, we never, we never get like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just, and um, I think like, I don't know. I, I actually just remembered slut wave talking to you now. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. like, that like, I remember, I remember when I first heard that term, um, I think it was, like, during the artist, like, wave, I, I think it was, like, was it, like, Kesha and Katy Perry and, like, um, artists like like that. And Like, I remember somebody just, like, I was casually talking to someone. They're like, oh, you know, like, you know, slut wave. And I was like, what? What? What is that? And I remember, like, having to look it up. Slut wave. Like, ugh. You know? And, but then, you know, musically... People will start talking like you know, and they'll reference, like oh, yeah, like the slut wave era, and it's like, oh okay, so this is we're doing this now, okay. Like I don't, you know, it, it's still it's still one of those things where you know sometimes I just don't know if we have to like laugh or be offended. Like I, sometimes I just can't tell. <laughs> like yeah. I'm
3: just like, what day is it? You know. <laughs> it's so interesting too because there's just so many words to describe women, and there aren't
0: nearly the same amount to describe men in different ways, you know? Well, it reminded me too of, you're saying, it's either really complimentary or really condescending in that duality of, you know, is there really anywhere in the middle? And it kind of reminded me of what you had written about with, um, you know, on the one hand, women in hip hop uh, wearing you know braids and oversized denim so they're not sexualized in any mm-hmm. way or like moni love shaving her head taping her breasts down and then in that reversal lil kim making men into the sex objects and it you know like spreading like squatting and spreading her legs in a leopard print bikini and, and like being encouraged for being sexy and dirty and you know where's the kind of in between i guess
4: mm mm-hmm. I mean, there is no in between, and and I mean, look at, <clears throat> you know, there wasn't in between, and her name was Lauren Hill, yeah. and, you know, um, but look at how the industry treated her, yeah, you know, so yeah, I don't think I still don't think we have an artist who effectively did what Lauren did in that regard when it came to, um, like. St- like in in this one very specifically and that like existed in between two very conflicting worlds. So yeah, I mean, it's, it really is just one of those things where it's like, you're either being challenged for being like too sexual or being challenged for not being sexual enough. And it's, you know, still to this day, to this day, like I, you know, I, I think about, uh I think about um just somebody somebody put something up like Mm -hmm. about i think it was like rhapsody who's my girl like i love her to death um you know they were mad that rhapsody's album eve didn't do as well as as um, they wanted it to this particular person i mean that album is so brilliant shout out to rhapsody um and they -hmm. were like yeah rhapsody's album didn't do xyz yeah um fat pussy rap prevails I was like, Oh, why? Like, ew. Like, yeah. what? wow. It, you know, like, uh, like, what is that? Like, really? That's what, that's what we're doing. You know, yeah. there are so many different, brilliant, amazing, beautiful, talented women on the scene. Why are you separating it again? Like, why are you separating women once again? Like now, now it's like the, like really, like, this is what we're doing. It I is know. so infuriating. Yeah. It's like absurd. Like, you know, come on, Rhapsody's doing her thing, you know? And so is Megan The Stallion. So are the City Girls, Cash Doll, Kaylee 47, Sierra, Whack, Rico, Nasty, the list goes on and on and on. Damn. And to turn around and and suggest that one artist has lost meaning another artist has gained like it just it did not make any sense to me and I'm like are we really really still having this conversation come on
3: it's still looking at the industry as a piece of pie and if someone has their success it means you have less for some
4: reason as opposed to er, there's room for everyone yes yes like there's so there's room for everyone. Like yeah. come on, but that's that's the narrative. That's how the narrative gets designed, right? Like that's how that's how you then pit people against each other, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And you know, thankfully, that's um, not the first thing that the women in the, um, in the space right now are thinking about. They're not thinking about how they could fight each other. Yeah, which I think is really great.
3: What? do you think made women simultaneously the greatest assets and the greatest casualties in hip hop?
4: Well, because women in hip hop are responsible for a lot of things that help change the course of events, um, you know, as it pertains to hip hop. I mean, the thing that I think um, I point to, probably like the early two thousands, um, as the best example. So talking about 1999, right? Napster happens and the music industry basically ignores it for a little bit until they start seeing their record sales dropping and then they go into panic mode, right? Mm -hmm. They start pulling budgets from women, right? Like, Oh, we can't afford you. We can't afford your hair. We can't afford your makeup. We can't afford your pyrotechnics and your stage setup and your dancers. But if we're going to tour you, you need all of that because you can't just be on stage, with baggy jeans and a t-shirt grabbing your dick, right? Like you can't, you don't have like, that's, you know, <laughs> right. So I can curse on this podcast, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Cause I've been, I've been a real PG for like this whole like, time here and I'm just like, how do I not say, okay. So, um, so yeah, I mean, and, and Trina tells this story better than anyone because being told that like, oh, we'd love to have you on stage, but like you're too much money. Right. But it's, because of really like the the thing that I thought was like so funny her being told that in 2000 right 2000s -hmm. I think about 1997 during Puff Daddy and the Family Tour where it was like the most elaborate like event right I went twice (laughs) and it was just I can't like and you're talking about, like, right after, like, Biggie passed away and, like, Tupac and, like, you know, it was this really big change in hip-hop because you had to sanitize, like, because the fear was that, like, rap was so violent and, and you know, we, we call this the shiny suit era, right? Because that's what Puffy would wear while he was, like, performing and in videos and stuff. He would wear this really shiny suit. And um, that era allowed for this, like, huge, like, just this big moment like hip hop was flashy right and everyone liked it because it didn't feel violent right and like mainstream um gravitated toward it because you know it was it didn't, it didn't feel unsafe. Right. And he did that. He he removed the safety, you know, um, from it. And you know, that's where an artist like Missy Elliott was able to shine because she was able to turn around and say, okay, so while you're all blinded by the suit, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get all Andy Warhol on your asses. And I'm going to like, make these videos that are just like all over the place and like, just so abstract and brilliant. And that allowed for the element of weird to enter into hip-hop, right? I know I jumped around because I went into 2000s first. But then, like, what Trina did was at this time period where she's not being told she's too expensive. Like, think about this. Like, you had you had Puffy touring, like, oh, my God. Who was on that tour? You're talking about the locks, Little Kim, him. If I'm not mistaken, Usher opened. Was right? Mace there somewhere? Mace, Mace was there. <laughs> um, I Like, was Black Rob? He might have been there, too. You're talking about, like... 10 people, right? And not a single one of them were dressed, like, in, like, you know, sweatpants, right? Yeah. So imagine how much money that costed. And then being told, like, three years later, because money was dipping, sorry, Trina, (laughs) you know? But her ability to maintain that, like, flashy air and that that ability to still create, like, a huge stage presence and everything, it, um, I believe she was, like, one of the reasons why, um, hip-hop shows were still able to get that that big and glamorous and like, you know what I mean? Because like she was an artist who, I mean, her stage, everything she did was just really big um, and bold and, you know, later Nikki and, and other artists like that. But I think like it's maintaining that, um, that aesthetic that I think allowed for things like the glow in the dark tour later on, you know what I mean? Like things that like with Kanye West and um, being able to continue to create like a big performance, but also just, Having that, um, fighting against the powers that be to maintain your individuality and to maintain these these things that later now um, like remain the norm, right? Like, you know, a lot of artists. Even I mean, look at Travis Scott's uh, the Astro World tour. Like these are these are big big things, right? And um, I just can't imagine someone telling Travis Scott that he's too much money to tour. Maybe he does. Maybe that happens. I don't know, right? But Trina being told that she can't put makeup on because it's too expensive, I think is like really just ironic. But, um, women having these stories, that's, that's very important, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's something that changes everything. You know, it changes the course of events. Um, Missy Elliott being able to venture into this abstract world, you know, was something that changed everything. Lauren Hill making hip hop mainstream, but still have soul and, and, and being able to combine like singing and rapping in a way that was like really, really embraced. That was a first, I mean, Lauren Hill. Yeah. She's the reason why we have Drake, but Queen Latifah is also the reason why we have Lauren Hill because, you know, she's singing the hook on ladies first, you know? Um, but, but there are, but Lauren was the one who, who made it, who made it popular and made it, um, allowed for it to. Get to the size that it did, right? So there were just like, you know, little, little Kim and Foxy Brown, you know, they had to walk so Cardi B and Nicki Minaj could fly, right? <laughs> so, you know, I think it's like, it's, it's, a, it's there are so many different things that um, that happened throughout history that involved women and, and particularly, you know, in hip hop that without them, none of this would be going on right now. There's, don't like, think about it. If there were no Lauren Hill, right, rappers would still be regarding singing and rapping as something like jokey. Think about Bismarcky, you know, with uh, just a friend where he's singing, You got what I need. Like it's like it's a it's a joke. Like he's like it's him like wailing because he's upset that this girl only wants him as a friend, right? It's not like he's actually trying to be a singer mm-hmm. or notorious B.I.G.'s player hater, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, singing all off key on purpose, right? If we didn't have Lauren. You wouldn't have artists of today, like even like, let's say a juice world or someone like who or like a lot of these artists who really are just straight up singing and it's being called hip hop. Yeah. That's all because of her, you know, the whole reason why we have this current scene are because of the women before, you know, and um, even the weird element, the abstract element, that's Missy, man. That you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's, you know, like that's come on now. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, you know, it's just women have contributed so much. And, um, and it's just, it, it, it blows my mind sometimes to think about how they were trying to stop them from doing that, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, your book is a real mind blower. And so I just want to thank you so much for writing that. And especially like sitting here is, uh, two women who are so fascinated by women in music history. It's kind of like it took us a while to get around to this, but I'm so glad that we did, and I'm so glad that we were able to get connected uh, so that we can, I guess, just keep spreading the word of the book and these women, these incredible pioneers, uh, these women in music history.
4: Yeah, and, and, and thank you. And present and future. Yeah, for sure. But But thank you for wanting to even bring a greater attention to it I mean that says a lot too
3: so just to wrap this up where would you like to see hip-hop go in the next five years and who are the artists today that get you
4: really excited oh the next five years I was I was like looking at like two years like I <laughs> I want to make sure me personally you know I just want to make sure that um, this growing awareness of women in hip-hop isn't being viewed as a trend right like it's not like women are being seen as a subgenre right like there was like for a while there was soundcloud rap and mumble rap I don't want it to be like okay well there's that and women rap you know like I want to see what what um what becomes of this this um incredible incredible moment you know um like I just want it to be now a situation where it's just women don't have to be singled out and be, you know, collectively acknowledged as some sort of like offshoot of uh, the greater whole. So I'm hoping that's a thing that happens in the next few years where we're really not having to have these kinds of conversations because it's just so natural for women to just be in the scene and doing their thing and thriving. So, um, that's like the first, first and foremost, as far as like artists that I'm feeling, you know, um, some of the aforementioned women that I, I mentioned, like, I mean, I, I love Megan Thee Stallion. I love her. Yeah, so much. Great. Um yeah. And I love Rhapsody. I love Rhapsody. Uh and Tierra Whack and Rico Nasty, like I said, and um I love Cash doll and Dreezy Oh my god, Dreezy's my girl too. Uh a lot of these artists, like it's just a whole different energy. I love Sweetie, City Girls. Um, they're it's just such a cool time, you know? I mean there's a lot of like male artists I like too, like don't get me wrong. Like I, but um, you know they always get mentioned. So I'm keeping it to the ladies right now, but um, yeah, but there's just so many different dimensions. And like, I love Nicki Minaj. Like I, you know, (laughs) I I've always been a Barb's like from day one. And it's, you know, and I've always been a huge little Kim and Foxy Brown fan. So I'm, I'm like that unicorn who I like, I don't have a team, you know, but because I love them all so much. And I, and I see the similarities, but I also see the and, you know, I can carry on. And I mean, above all Lauryn Hill, oh my God, I like if we can get another Lauryn Hill album, that's what I want in the next five years. There, <laughs> there it is. That's, that's what I hope to see in the next five years. Forget everything else I said. Oh my <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, no, but uh, yeah, like it's a really good time. It's a really, really good time to, uh, to be a woman in hip hop. And I just, I just want to see it go to places that um, no one who's a part of it ever fathomed
3: amazing well thank you so much for talking with us and for writing this book what a great conversation uh
0: thank you for teaching us
4: no thanks for having me
0: and is there anything else that you wanted to mention we should definitely say that the book is coming out october 22nd yes so by the time people will be listening to this it should be about a week after that the
4: book is out go 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 get get it. it Yeah. Yeah, please. And get the audiobook. I narrate a, little, a couple of parts too. So. Oh, amazing. Oh, good to know.
0: Yeah. God Save the Queens The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop, Kathy
4: Eandelee. Thank you yes. so much. Where can people find you online? You can find me at Kath that's Kath3000. That's K A T H uh, 3000. Twitter, Instagram, and all that. I don't. I don't, I don't have anything else. <laughs> I don't have a TikTok or whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, are you Gen Z? Like, I think that's the people that have TikTok right now. Yeah, <laughs> no, imagine. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, the, those are those are the places to find me.
0: <laughs> awesome, and we'll make sure that uh, yeah, we'll link up those socials and uh, link to the book, which I imagine will be everywhere where you find your books and. Uh, yeah, everybody should really do themselves a favor and and pick it up because it's fantastic. We loved it. Thank you. Thank you. And we love this conversation. Yeah, me too. Girls,
1: you know you better watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about
2: Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com. All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods or see us at r Archaeology on Instagram. <laughs> Welcome to Woodstock Nation. Your host, Marla Davies.
1: Hey, it's Marla Davies. Welcome to Woodstock Nation. Celebrating the revolution, evolution, and life-changing magic of music festivals from Woodstock to today. Each week, I bring you interviews, recollections, and stories from musicians, concert promoters, influencers, music lovers, and festival goers about their love of music. The magic of music festivals and the power that music has that keeps bringing people out to celebrate together as a tribe. Since Woodstock, there have been so many festivals, and it'd be hard fought to find somebody who hasn't been to one Coachella, Bonnaroo, Outside Lands, Lockin', Lollapalooza, The Warp Tour, Bottle Rock, Cali Roots Day on the Green, Live Aid, The Us Festival, and Woodstock. What all these festivals have in common are the people who come out with one mission to let go, have a good time, join together, make memories, and listen to music and dance. That's the magic of music festivals. We've interviewed original Woodstock artists, musicians, and festival goers, and are looking forward to connecting with more people who resonate with the vibe. If you've ever enjoyed yourself at a music festival, you'll love Woodstock Nation. Check out Woodstock Nation on the Pantheon Podcast Network and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Marla Davies for Woodstock Nation. Peace.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football